It's not conservative or liberal, however they're defined. It's not about interpretation or the judgment of the mind. It's the opposite of politics, power or prestige. It's about a simple message. And whether we believe, it's still the cross. It's still the blood of Calvary that cleanses sin and sets the captive free. It's still the name, the name of Jesus that has power to save the lost. It's still the cross. It's still the cross. Now we can water down theology, preach a word to suit our needs. We can justify sweet, subtle lies that are wrapped in noble deeds. We can alter our convictions to adapt to social whims, but we cannot change the gospel or the truth contained within. It's still the cross. It's still the blood of Calvary that cleanses sin and sets the captive free. It's still the name, the name of Jesus that has power to save the lost. It's still the cross. Though some may say it's man's religion, history. The cross of Jesus still remains the price for sin that sets us free. It's still the cross. It's still the blood of Calvary that cleanses sin and sets the captive free. It's still That has power to save the lost is still the cross. It's still the Amen. Amen. It is still the cross. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for that cross. We're so thankful for the old rugged cross and, and the Christ of the cross. We're so thankful for the eternal salvation that was purchased for us there. Help us to never forget what was done for us on that day. Help us to always live in the remembrance of Calvary. Bless our time now, Father. Visit with us and, and give us open ears 
open minds and open hearts as we study the word you have for us. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. If you've never read the life story of Walt Disney, I would encourage you to, and I'm sure you'd conclude that he was an incredible entrepreneur, a creative genius, and a man of principle. He came from humble beginnings, but at the time of his death in 1966, his net worth was $1 billion. But what strikes me most about the man was that he never forgot what got him there. Elias Disney, Walt's dad, was a deacon at the family's congregational church, and he named Walt after the family minister, Walter Parr. His parents were dedicated to raising Walt in the fear of God. And years later, Walt Disney wrote in 1963, in these days of world tensions, when the faith of men is being tested as never before, I am personally thankful that my parents taught me at a very early age to have a strong relationship with Christ and a reliance in the power of prayer for divine inspiration. My people were members, he said, of the congregational church in our hometown of Marceline, Missouri. It was there where I was first taught the efficacy of religion, how it helps us immeasurably to meet the trial and stress of life and keeps us attuned to the divine inspiration. Deeds rather than words express my concept of the part religion should play in everyday life. I have watched constantly that in our movie work, the highest moral and spiritual standards are upheld. Oh, where's Walt today? Whether it deals with fable or with stories of living action, this religious concern for the form and content of our films goes back 40 years to the rugged financial period in Kansas City when I was struggling to establish a film company and produce animated fairy tales. Many times during those difficult years, we were under pressure to sell out or debase the subject matter or go commercial in one way or another, but we stuck it out, my brother Roy and, and my other loyal associates, until the success of Mickey Mouse finally put us in the black. Similarly, when war came to the United States, in 1941, we turned from profitable popular movie making to military production for Uncle Sam. 94% of the Disney facilities in Hollywood became engaged in special government work, while the remainder was devoted to the creation of morale building comedy and short subjects. Well, about a decade after World War II, Walt Disney opened up his first amusement park, Disneyland, in Anaheim, California. At the grand opening, before any ride could be ridden, before anything in the park could be enjoyed, Walt insisted that his pastor deliver an opening prayer in front of the massive crowd that showed up. The park and the Walt Disney Company would go on to become astronomically successful and continues to be so to this day. And near the end of his life, Walt wrote the following in a book about prayer. He said thus, Whatever success I have had in bringing clean, informative entertainment to people of all ages, I attribute in great part to my church upbringing and my lifelong habit of prayer. To me today at age 61, all prayer, by the humble or highly placed, has one thing in common, supplication for strength and inspiration to carry on the best human impulses which should bind us together for a better world. 
I attribute all my success, if I've had any, he says, to my church upbringing and the power of prayer. That's a man who never forgot what got him to where he was. It's easy to do, though, isn't it? It's easy to lose focus on what got us to where we are. If I were to ask each of you as believers in Christ, what got you here? We would all point to one thing, one event, the cross. As believers, the cross of Jesus Christ, which we sang that congregational hymn about, the old rugged cross, it's central to our faith. What took place at Calvary earned our, our pardon from sin and death and hell. It purchased the right for us to become heirs of the kingdom of heaven. But that cross shouldn't just be a past remembrance. The cross should be the focus of our daily lives. We must live daily in light of the cross and what was accomplished for us there. What does that mean? What does that mean, living in light of the cross? It may strike us as a bit theological or, or impractical. How does that help me work out my day-to-day -day problems? How does that help me with the problems in my marriage or raising my kids or paying my bills? Well, I would argue that the cross is the most practical of biblical studies. See, the cross reveals to us the character of God, his love for lost sinners, and, and his perfect justice meet at the cross. And if we want to grow in our love for God, which is the first and, and the greatest commandment, then we must be growing in our appreciation for the cross, which shows us his great love. If we want to grow in godliness, we must grow in the understanding of the significance of the cross which confronts the most prevalent and insidious of all sins, pride. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. The cross is the place where all the wounds of sin are healed. If you suffer from emotional problems, guilt, anxiety, depression, anger, whatever, there's healing at the cross of Christ. If you're going through tragedy and suffering, there's comfort in abundance as you contemplate the sufferings of the spotless Savior on your behalf. After all, Peter wrote of the cross to slaves who were suffering unjustly under cruel masters, and the words about Christ's wounds must have spoken to the hearts of these slaves who were whipped unjustly. Peter knew that meditating on the cross would produce in them a heart of overflowing gratitude to the one who bore so much on their behalf. Keeping the cross of Christ central will protect you from the many winds of false doctrine blowing in our day-to-day. -day. A focus on the cross has untold practical benefits. But Satan hates the cross. He hates it because it sealed his doom. And he's relentless in his attacks to undermine and thwart the cross. Every cult, every false teaching, in some way or another, diminishes the work of Christ on the cross and magnifies human ability. I believe that the doctrine which Satan is currently working to erode in Christianity today is the doctrine of sin. If he can convince us that we're not sinners who, who deserve God's wrath, then we don't need a crucified Savior. If he can convince Christians that they're not ongoing sinners in, in need of daily repentance, then they don't need to go deeper in appropriating the message of the cross. Thus, the importance and the centrality of the cross is crucial to all sound doctrine. Here's the summary. It's said so well. 1 Peter 
2, 24 and 25. This is our main text. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. We heard it this morning at the breaking of bread. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So here's how I would paraphrase this. Through Christ's death on the cross, those who turn to him are delivered from both the penalty and the power of sin. We're delivered once and forever from the penalty of sin, and we're delivered daily from the power of sin. So therefore, the cross plays the most important role in our past, when we were saved from the penalty of sin, our present, when we are saved from the power of sin, and our future, which was purchased with a cancellation of the debt of sin. The cross should be everything. The cross should be the driving force in, in how we deal with people and what message we convey to them. In our workplaces, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, we must live in a manner by which we spread the saving gospel, the message of the cross to all who will listen to it. It should be the goal to which we raise our children. We must raise them by being examples of our Heavenly Father and give them the knowledge that will lead them to the cross so that one day they can have their own transformation. Every aspect of our lives must be practically impacted by the cross. So, for something so critical to every stage in and every aspect of our lives, it seems incomprehensible to think that we could lose focus on the cross, that we could forget, that we could carry on our lives with no respect to the cross, to its meaning and its power. But it happens, and it happens all too often. Today we're going to look at some things that steal our focus, devious distractions that take our eyes and our minds and our attention off of the cross. Our first one, our first distraction, our past. Our past can be a very powerful distraction that destroys our present and clouds our future. One man said to his friend, say, you look depressed. What are you thinking about? My future was the quick answer. What makes it look so hopeless? My past. We've been there. We get down about our present and we get hopeless about our future because of what took place in our past. So often we can't escape the repercussions of our past, the results of our past. We pay the price for mistakes, for failures, for sins in our past. We must live with the pain of things that may have taken place in our past. But here's the good news. In Christ, our past has no power over us. What does that mean? Well, it can affect our eternal future. That's the key. When you realize that your past will not affect your eternal future, guess what? It loses hold over you. Whatever pain has been incurred in your past is healed at Calvary. Whatever sins you committed in your past are forgiven at the cross. These should no longer impact your thoughts, your attitude, your joy. Psalm 103, 12 tells us, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31, 34 tells us, No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, 
from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. If we have God's promise that he doesn't even remember our sins, why should we? If we dwell on them, what does it accomplish? If he has forgiven our sins, why? Why dwell on them? Why fixate on them? Why should we revisit them? Why should they cripple us? Why should they steal our focus from living right and living in light of the cross and what it accomplished for us? What do we accomplish by looking back? Christ resolved our past at Calvary. That's it's settled business. We shouldn't waste our time, our emotions, our efforts, our energy being consumed by our past. Whether we feel guilt about it or whether we use it as a scapegoat for all our current situations, holding on to the past is a recipe for disaster. Are you someone who's stuck in the past? Stuck pointing fingers at this person and that person? At this incident and that incident? I am what I am because that happened to me. I can't change because this person did that to me. Is that blame helping in any way? Dr. Warren Worsby said it well. He said, you do not move ahead by constantly looking in a rearview mirror. The past is a rudder to guide you, not an anchor to drag you. We must learn from the past but not live in the past. So true. Our past should caution us but should not cripple us. A famous quote reminds us that our past should be a reference, not a residence. We don't live there anymore. We must not be consumed by it. We, we must not lose focus because of it. The good news is the cross is the great reset button of life. What took place before is gloriously erased. He gives us a clean start, a clean slate, a fresh start. Why should we go back to what has already been covered under the blood of Calvary? It has no hold on us. It has no impact on our eternal future. Paul says in Philippians 3, 13 and 14, and this should be our spirit. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. That should be our spirit. That should be our decision. Forget about the past. I put the past behind me and I press on toward the goal. I press on in the path to which God has called me. I look forward to the eternal future which was secured for me, which was guaranteed to me by the redemptive work of Calvary. Leave the past in the past. Let's take our eyes off of it and return them onto Christ. Amen? and the power of the cross. That's where our, sh our focus should be. So our first distraction, our past. Our second distraction, our pursuits. A great distraction the devil uses in our lives is to get us so busy with pursuits that have no eternal value. We can spend so much time and effort and money and energy. We pledge our thoughts. We invest our emotions and our hearts Chasing a dream, chasing a cause that in the, amount, in the end amounts to nothing. Nothing of eternal worth. 
There are worthwhile pursuits for which we should throw all of ourselves into. The pursuit of godliness, the pursuit of character, the pursuit of excellence in our ministries and endeavors for the Lord. Investments of ourselves into our loved ones. But these are rarely the pursuits that grab hold of our, of our lives and our attention, are they? Too often we find ourselves stuck in the pursuit of success, the pursuit of riches, the pursuit of, of happiness, the pursuit of position and power. Friend, these are not the pursuits we should be chasing. You want to know what those are? In all honesty, honesty, these are the benefits of living a life for God. You want to have success in life? We want success. We chase success. You want success? Live a life that pleases God and follow hard after Him. He'll make you successful. Do you want financial security? Place your trust in God and pursue a deeper relationship with Him. And He will take care of every need you have. You want happiness and lasting joy? Focus your heart and your hope on the things of the Lord and His causes, and He will give you joy beyond your wildest dreams. These are the pursuits that provide the benefits we want, right? But we rarely focus on pursuing them. Instead, we want to short-circuit the process. We want to take a shortcut and just pursue the benefits. We have agendas. I want things, I want happiness, I want success, I want money. Friend, even if you acquire some of these things in your frantic pursuit, they will slip through your fingers like sand because they are not provided from the hand of God. God wants you to have all these things. He wants to bless your socks off, but blessings are the result of our obedience to Him. If we aren't living for Him, if we're living in disobedience to His Word, in defiance of His commands, in ignorance of His principles, do you think there will be lasting blessings in your life? No. Don't mistake this with God's love. He loves us unconditionally, no matter what we do. But blessings require obedience. It's not a message we want to hear. It's not a popular message. I wish I could stand up here and tell you that God will bless you unconditionally and richly, regardless of your life, regardless of your lifestyle, regardless of your choices, your actions, your disobedience, whatever pursuits you pursue. He will richly reward your life regardless of what you do or do not do for Him. That would be a popular message. We would feel so good about our lives. We would fill every seat. The doors would be open for overflow seating. It would be standing room only, but it would be a lie. The blessings of God are contingent upon the obedience of man. Let me say that again. The blessings of God are predicated on the obedience of man. Scripture's filled with examples to make this clear. Look at some of these. Exodus 19.5 Now, if you will obey me and keep my covenant... You will be my own special treasure from among all the peoples on earth. For all the earth belongs to me. Exodus 23, 22. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. 
Deuteronomy 7.12, if you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your ancestors. Deuteronomy 12.28, be careful to obey all these regula regulations I'm giving you so that it may always go well with you and your children after you because you will be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 28.1, if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. Deuteronomy 29.9, so keep the words of this covenant to do them so that you may prosper in all that you do. And Jesus said in the Gospels, Luke 11.28, he replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Hear the word of God and obey it, and you will be blessed. There are literally hundreds and hundreds of verses with this theme. If you obey, if you live right, if you seek God, then I will bless you, then I will prosper you, then I will fill your days with good things, then I will stand against your enemies, then I will watch over you and your children. Hope MacDonald said, when we choose the obedient life, we are permitting God to make our lives all he dreamed they would become. We no longer need to ask what God's will is because we are continually living in his will. Our goal in life is obedience to him in the midst of every situation. All the good things we want in life start with obedience to God. Living in his will, that should be our pursuit. Stop chasing the benefits and start chasing the cause. And when our pursuits are in line with this, we will be focused on him. We will be focused on the cause of Christ and the message of the cross. That's where our focus should be. Not on things, not on happy happenings, not on money, not on power or position or popularity. All of these are deviously positioned pursuits in our lives meant only to distract us from what really matters and what really counts for eternity. Amen? Watch out for the distractions of our past. Watch out for the distractions of our pursuits. And our third distraction, our fears. I'm not going to tell you that fear is wrong or fear is unnatural. As Christians, you shouldn't fear. We all have fears. We all have fears in life. And our fears are, are personal and, and they differ from one person to the next. Some fear the future. Some fear the past. Catching up to them. Some fear the present. Some fear war, some fear illness, some fear financial ruin, some fear for their children, some fear for their jobs. Whatever the fear may be, fear is a normal part of our human makeup. It's normal to fear. Jesus experienced fear. He knows what it is to have fear. He dreaded and experienced fear at Golgotha over what the next 24 hours would hold. His humanity provided him the same fear we experience. Fear is human. It's what we do with that fear and what we allow it to do to us that becomes our responsibility. During World War II, a military governor met with General George Patton, the great general, in Sicily. And when he praised Patton highly for his courage and bravery, the general replied, Sir, I'm not a brave man. The truth is I am an utter craven, Coward. I've never been within 
the sound of gunshot or in sight of battle in my whole life that I wasn't so scared that I had sweat in the palms of my hands. And years later, when Patton's autobiography was published, it contained this significant statement by the great general. But I learned very early in my life to never take the counsel of my fears. It's good advice. Never listen to the counsel of your fears. What did Jesus do? He expressed his fears to the Father. If there is any way, take this cup from me. But he acted on his faith. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. That's a great recipe for us. Take our fears to the Father and resolve to act in faith. We must choose. We must act. We must decide. We must move based on our faith, not on our fears. Our fears, if given the preeminence in our lives, will do nothing but cripple us, distract us, weaken us, waste our emotions, our energies, and our time. We will spin and spin and go nowhere listening to our fears. It's not worth it. The key is to choose faith over fear, to lay our fears like Jesus did at the altar and choose to walk on in faith. Hannah Hernard, author of Hind's Feet on High Places, was once paralyzed by fear. And then she heard a sermon on scarecrows that forever changed her life and challenged her to turn her fear into faith. And the preacher said this. <clears throat> he said, a wise bird knows that a scarecrow is simply an advertisement. That's pretty good. It announces that some very juicy and delicious fruit is to be had for the picking. There are scarecrows in all the best gardens. If I am wise, I too shall treat the scarecrow as though it were an invitation. <clears throat> Every giant in the way which makes me feel like a grasshopper is only a scarecrow beckoning me to God's richest blessings. He concluded, faith is a bird which loves to perch on scarecrows because all our fears are groundless. Fear is such a clever distraction, isn't it? The devil uses it in our lives. If fear takes hold of us, everything else takes a back seat. Nothing will be accomplished. Nothing will be gained. Faith cannot flourish in an environment of fear. But we have to recognize fear and approach it in that way. It's a great approach to realize that on the other side of our fear, a great blessing awaits. It's just a scarecrow. The devil throws fear our way to keep us from the blessing, to stop us from the accomplishment, to hold us back from the growth. We're not responsible for our fears, but we are responsible for how we handle them, how we respond to them, and what we do with them. Let's say no to fear. Look fear in the face and reply, I'm a child of the king. You have no business here. Thank you. Only then can we be focused on what matters. Only then can we be focused on Christ and the cross and his finished work at Calvary. <clears throat> our past, our pursuits, our fears, and finally, our comparisons 
If the devil can get us so busy by looking around and comparing our lives with others, if he can get us so consumed with what we don't have and how our lives aren't like our neighbors, he wins. We become so completely dissatisfied and distracted that our focus on Christ and the message of the cross is completely lost. And it happens far too often, doesn't it? We get so busy comparing our lives that we forget to live them. And it's gotten so much worse in modern society and with the rise of social media. You can now create a fabricated picture of your life for all your friends to see. With photo streams and by-the-minute accounts, we post the look what I did and look where I went and look what I have for all to see and compare against. But we hide the realities of life, don't we? We cherry-pick only the highlights and we hope that God no one ever sees the lowlights. You never see... You never see a post that uh, says, I, wow, I had a monster fight with my wife today. Couldn't sleep last night worrying about my job. No, we, we cherry pick the, the highlights. Heaven forbid anyone sees the, the reality of life. But what's happening is that an entire social subculture has become disgruntled because they're comparing their real lives to the Facebook lives of their friends. I heard a quote recently where one woman said of another, she has the Facebook life I want. <laughs> stop, just stop. Those aren't their real lives. Those aren't their real stories. The comparisons will get you nowhere because first, you're comparing to a purposely crafted image. And second, and more importantly, most importantly, what God has ordained for you will always be different than what God has ordained for someone else. Stop comparing your life and start living it. We develop a sense of entitlement that if somebody else has something, we should have it too. If somebody else experienced something, hey, we should experience that too. Start enjoying what God has provided to you in your life. Amen. Scripture has a lot to say about this. It's called coveting. It's one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We're warned throughout Scripture against the dangers of coveting money or possessions or things or lives, and coveting is born from comparing. First we compare, then we covet. And when we covet, it becomes all-consuming. Somehow our focus shifts and we become so obsessed with something we don't have that it drives us crazy, it, and it drives our priorities, it changes our actions, it drives our efforts, it drains our joy, and it leaves us bitter and dissatisfied with our lives. Let's not get there. Let's put an end to the comparisons before they become covetous. You want to compare and covet, covet the godly characteristics of those around you. Those are good things to covet. Those are good things to pursue. I've always coveted my mother's prayer life. I want to be a prayer warrior just like my mother. I've always coveted my father's patience. Oh, Lord, bind my tongue and give me patience and tolerance like he has. Those are good things. Those are the kinds of things we should covet. 
Look at the godly traits of those around you and desire to emulate those. Those are good things to want. But the comparisons of things, the comparisons of lives, these comparisons that lead to dissatisfaction, they'll get us nowhere. And they'll prove to only be a distraction from what we really should be focused on. Devious distractions. Our past, our pursuits, our fears, and our comparisons. Or another way to say it is looking back, looking around, looking within, and looking at others. They all have something in common. We're not looking at Christ. They're surefire destroyers of our focus on Christ and the message of the cross. So friend, ask yourself today, where's my focus in life? Is my life driven in pursuit of Christ and his kingdom and spreading the saving message of the cross? Or am I weighed down, distracted and consumed by my past, by my own trivial pursuits, by my fears and my comparisons with those around me? Friend, it's, it's time to take all of those and lay them at the foot of the cross. Take all of those distractions and get rid of them. It's time to refocus. It's time to regroup. It's time to remember what Christ did for us and how we should live in return. It's time to live for what counts, for what really matters in the scope of eternity. Since Adam and Eve first bit into that fruit and introduced sin into our fallen race, God has spent his time longing for us, reaching for us, yearning for us. From generation to generation, he continued reaching out to us, drawing us to him, searching endlessly for us until finally, that longing and that reaching became a wooden cross. That would be the final solution to win us back to himself. And in the greatest sacrifice, in the greatest act of all time, that loving Heavenly Father sent his only Son to die on the cross as a substitute for you and for me, as a final sacrifice to settle the matter of sin that we incurred. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, if you've never accepted that ultimate sacrifice on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've never received him into your heart and into your life as your personal savior, you know what, now is the time. He's knocking on the door. It's the single greatest decision you can make in life. Redemption. That's what awaits you at the cross. Forgiveness eternal salvation and eternal security. Your standing in God will forever be settled with one decision. Make that choice today. Reach out to the nail-scarred hand that's been reaching out to you. And dear believer, do you find yourself living life having forgotten about that glorious cross? It's taken a back seat in your life. Are you so distracted by things that don't matter that you've forgotten all that does? Turn your eyes back to Jesus. Turn your gaze back to that old rugged cross. That's what matters. It's still the cross. That's the message. That will always be our message. 
Remember what he did for you there. Remember that day that you said yes and took him into into your heart. Remember that day that changed your life forever and live in light of that change. Live in light of the cross. Live to tell others about what happened at Calvary, what happened to you. Live a life worthy of the sacrifice that he made for you. Put away the distractions. Rise above the fray. Silence the noise. Stop focusing on those distractions, the past. Put away the trivial pursuits. Choose not to listen to the fears and stop looking around at others and focusing on what you don't have. End the distractions. Silence the devil and focus wholeheartedly on Jesus Christ and the message of the cross. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, too long have we wasted our time on distractions which do nothing but shift our focus away from Christ, away from Calvary, away from the message of the cross and the purpose that the finished work of Christ on the cross has given us. Help us to let go of these distractions, Lord. Help us to turn away from our past, to give up our earthly pursuits that have no eternal value. Help us, Lord, to overcome our fears and choose to walk by faith. And give us strength, Lord, to stop the comparisons and the inevitable coveting that comes by looking at others and focusing on what we don't have. In you, Lord, we have everything. We want to live in light of the cross. We want to live a life worthy of the salvation which was purchased for us there. We want to live a life that serves as a testimony to your saving grace. We want to spread the message to all who will hear it. Lord, give us a tenacious focus. Give us perseverance and consistency to stay the course, Father, until the day that you call us home. In the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.